Systematic theology is a logical study of what the Bible says about various topics or questions we might have. It's not necessarily progressive. Usually it isn't. All right, here, here's the 10 topics, by the way, that we'll be studying in the next four semesters of systematic theology. We're doing an introduction, finishing that today. Then we'll move into bibliology, the study of Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture. And then we'll go into theology proper, which is what, what does the Bible say about God? We'll look at his attributes, we'll look at the Trinity, creation, providence, and other doctrines as well. And so that'll take us through almost the end of January, and then we'll start semester two, which will be Christology, pneumatology. I'm not sure how far we're going to go in that one, but we'll get Christology done for sure. Maybe the doctrine of man. Sometimes these can be moved around if you want to group them together. So if you want to follow the theme of the idea that who is man and he's a sinner, and then talk about soteriology right after that, six, seven, and eight, those usually go together as well. That's probably next fall, and then ecclesiology and eschatology next spring. Not this next, but the next year. Okay, so don't follow these ways to get your theology. These are bad. We talked about that last week. This is the way we often default, though. Well, I think, well, that's what my granddaddy believed. Uh, That's the church I grew up in. This is what I feel like. Uh, God said to me, Now we go to the Word. All right, so why study theology? We are right here. So we want to, number one, know God better. If you don't know God better, how can you say that you love Him? How can you say that you worship Him? How do you know if you worship Him rightly or praying rightly or reading the Scripture rightly or walking through life as a Christian the right way? So knowing God better, that's really number one. It's part of the Great Commission. Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I commended to observe. What do you command? How does that relate to what came before it? How does that relate to the Old Testament? How does Christ himself build upon the doctrine of creation and all these other doctrines that he touches on? Marriage, sin, salvation. So it's part of the Great Commission. If we're going to be teaching, what are we teaching? We're teaching a doctrine. We're teaching a a group of teachings that Christ taught his disciples. Number three, We're already theologians. Everyone's a theologian, R.C. Sproul said, and he's right. We're not all professional theologians. We don't sit around writing books on theology or studying it all day. But you do have a belief system already. You already do. Might as well be the biblical one if you're a Christian instead of the world's or your own feelings or whatever. You you already have a theological framework, a worldview. You already have ideas about who man is. And, who, and what sin is, and who Satan is, and what are angels, right? And the world has tons of ideas about that, right? Angels are little babies with wings. Are there women with wings who come into your home on the statue, and they bless your house, and run off the dragon statues? And I mean, it's just all over when you go into these places. They have dragons, and, and they have female angels right next to each other, and they're just little knickknacks that you get. And so the world has a theology about this. They don't understand what a man is. They don't understand what a woman is. They don't care what sin is. They don't care who God is. They try to reject him at every moment. They think, oh, my God's a loving God. He would never send anybody to hell. All of these are theological statements. Oh, the world's not going to end because there's no God. And if it does end, it's all humanity. And we're going to be killed by nature. We're going to be killed by tidal wave. We're going to be killed by ice age. We're going to be killed by the sun scorching. I mean, every movie that comes out every other month, right? There's different ways that mankind is going to cause nature to kill us. Well, they got something right there, but it's more of God's going to come back in his wrath. And nature is going to be used in that wrath to wipe out all sinful humanity. 
All right, number four, to avoid heretical and errant theology. So that's where we're at today. You need to obviously know God better. You need to be part of the Great Commission. That's what we're called to do. You're already a theologian, but you also need to avoid bad theology. You know, American Christianity doesn't care much about this anymore. Oh yeah, we need to know God as part of the Great Commission. I understand we're theologians, but I would never say that so-and-so is a false teacher. Well, Jesus did. Paul did. He named some of them. Peter said, you better beware of false teachers. So if we're called to beware of false prophets, false Christs, and false teachers, shouldn't we know what the true teaching is so we can avoid the faults? Yes, it's true. You should focus more on the the actual teaching of the Bible, right? How do you spot a counterfeit dollar bill? You know the real thing so well. That's how you spot a counterfeit. But you need to know what is true and know it really well and know something about the heresies that are out there, especially the popular ones, especially the ones that come into our church or our area, those that are like Roman Catholicism, which are predominant in the greater San Antonio area. You need to know a few things about that, especially if you're going to be a good evangelist? Are you going to be a good neighbor? You need to know something about Southern Christianity, which I'm going to talk a bit about in my sermon today. What does it mean to to be a Christian in the South? What does that culturally mean versus what the Bible says? Are there things in common? Yes. Are there things that maybe are more traditional and not in the Bible? Are there some Southern Christian heresies? Are there some, you can do it, it's all up to you kind of salvation thinking in the South, or that you're born into it? Again, hopefully today in the sermon, you'll hear some of that. Not the bad teaching, but how to fight against it. Matthew 15, 9, Jesus says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. So they worship me vainly. Vain means not you look in the mirror and say, Oh, I'm so vain. That's today's vanity. Vain here is, is more of empty. It's empty. They, they say they worship God, but it's really empty. There's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. it. It amounts to nothing. Because their doctrine, their theology, is actually the commands of men. This is legalism, if you look into what the Pharisees believe. They had a thinking, they had a theology, and they insisted that you follow it, and it was actually legalism, rules-based. It had nothing to do with what was actually taught in Scripture. It was a twisting of Scripture. Now, here, look at 1 Timothy 4, 1. But the Spirit explicitly says, so here's the Holy Spirit prophesying through the Word, and maybe even indirectly to the apostles here like Paul. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Some are going to say they're Christians, and then they're going to fall away. Why? What's the reason? They're paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. These are teachings. These are theological statements and sayings and books. And today, videos, internet websites, these are doctrines of demons. These are things that we should be aware of and watch out. We should be warned about. And they're in Scripture. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan just recycles the old stuff and everybody thinks it's brand new. Oh, look at these things that Christians have kept secret for thousands of years. Now I've found it. Now I can publish this new, you know, gospel according to the heretical so-and-so. And it's a whole new religion. Or listen to our cults class this summer. And that's exactly what they all did. Well, it's been corrupted. Let's go back. Let's go back to the early church. And guess what their view of the early church was? Whatever they wanted it to be. Let's get rid of church history. 
Uh, let's go back to Christian science. Or let's go back to Mormonism. That's what they all did. Because they didn't want to deal with theology. And they just made up their own. And said that was the original faith of Jesus. If we're going to stay away from doctrines of demons. We need to know the true doctrine. And we need to know the doctrine of demons. At least in a category sense. If you don't love studying Mormonism. Then don't spend all your life studying Mormonism. If you have a friend that's a Mormon. You should probably study it more. That would be helpful. But again, it has to be rightly studied. And you need to know the truth more than you know the lies. Look at Ephesians 4.11. I mean, this is so key here. He himself, this is Christ, he gave these different offices, their gifts to the church. So there's the office of apostle. That's no longer here. There's some as prophets. That's directly revealing what God has said to a prophet. That's no longer here. Some as evangelists. Some as pastors and teachers. So these are the offices of the church. These are a gift to the church. Because if you read the previous verse, 410, Christ came, he distributed gifts among men. And that's quoted in the Old Testament. Paul brings that forward and says that applies to the church as well. What's the purpose? Let's just look at pastors and teachers here. What's the purpose? For the equipping of the saints. That's you. That's believers. For the work of service. So who does the ministering? Who does not the ministering of the word necessarily, but the serving, the ministering in general? It's the believers in the church. And the pastors and teachers in the church equip them to do it. Okay, how long does this happen? Are we going to stop at some point? Yeah, I'm theologically astute. I'm biblically there. I think I've arrived. No, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the full knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's when you stop. Which is when? When you go to be with Christ. You can't look at your spouse or your neighbor and say, you know, the person sitting next to you in the church, I know more than him. I know more than her. That's not the standard, is it? What's the standard? The unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God. Do you have a full knowledge of the Son of God and all that he taught and all that he is? Do you really? Are you a mature Christian to the point of actually being complete? Is what the word mature means there in Greek. Have you measured up to the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ? You think you know more than somebody else and that, that, that might be wonderful. You've grown. But your comparison is Christ when it comes to your knowledge and your practice. It's Christ. What's the purpose of that, Paul? Why are, we, why are we doing that in this life? Well, one of the reasons is so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's bad doctrine out there. And it throws the Christian around by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's bad doctrine. There's bad teaching. It fools people. It's, it's from Satan, but he uses people. He uses teachers. He uses your friend, your family members to trick you so that you'll be thrown off. Oh yeah, you're good at, at you know, the Joe Osteens and the Joyce Myers. You don't go down that shelf in, in Barnes and Noble. But then here comes your friend and they're just hanging out with you over time. And a year, two years, your family member, maybe years go by. It's not that bad what they believe. You know, they just, they just don't understand that, that they say they're Christian and they say Jesus wasn't truly God, but they're my friend. They can't be that wrong. And you start to waver a little bit. Or they come at you and they say, well, hey, did you know that if you don't do X, Y, Z, you're not a real Christian? 
And you start wondering, you're not a mature man. You're not, you're not growing in the, the theological knowledge of the scriptures. And you say, am I saved? Man, I thought I was saved. I was in a good church. And suddenly they came in and they told me, if I don't believe this crazy doctrine over here they came up with, that I'm not a Christian. You see how people get thrown around? All kinds of things. Things happen in your life. Does God hate me? Maybe God hates me. Well, actually, it's just God testing you. Actually, it's just God seeing what you'll do in a stressful situation. What does the Bible have to say about that? What does the Bible have to say about that? Where does my sin come from? It's just Satan. It's all Satan's fault. I have nothing to do with my sin. Some people believe that, and that's what they teach, right? You're dealing with Satan whispering in your ear. It has nothing to do with you. You're a good person. You're a Christian now. You no longer have sin. Or what came up in our Bible study the other night. Can we be perfect in this life? Can we go from now till death or Christ comes back as a sanctified, completely holy Christian without any sin? There's a whole denomination, multiple actually, the Wesleyans, who teach that. Now they modify it and tweak it so they can, you know, actually live a Christian life, try to, and still believe it. But that's out there. There's charismatics who say, look, you sin. You got to go get dunked again and speak in tongues. Oh, it didn't work the first time. Let's go again. Let's go again. I had a, had a friend once. They said they just kept dunking him on the same day until <laughs> he, he said something. You know, like 10 times he finally mumbled some stuff. There's bad theology out there. And while some of that can be less harmful than others, Paul says all of it tosses you around. It throws you around. It's like you're a child. My kids will believe just about anything at a certain age, Right? I tell them there's a bear outside to get them to go to sleep, they will be scared for two weeks if they're three years old. If they're five years old sometimes, they believe anything. Even after I've stopped telling them that, they're still worried about the raccoons that might come and eat them or something. They believe anything. And immature Christians believe just about anything. Or they're just not quite sure. And Paul says, look, Christ gave gifts to the church, the office gifts, the apostles, of course, and prophets, and, and the apostles wrote down Scripture, but he says pastors and teachers are ongoing, and they're in the church, and they're equipping, and they're building up, and they're teaching you sound doctrine so that you're growing in the faith and not thrown around like a ship. The idea is that you're like a ship on the sea. Every time a storm blows through, you're about to tip over, and you're just sort of in freak-out mode. Anybody ever been there that wants to admit it? All right, I'm just... Oh, I don't even know what's going on in my life. What's God doing? Am I a Christian? Is the world going to end today? The sky is falling. Tossed about by every wind of doctrine. 1 Timothy 6.3 If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. He tells you to stay away from such people. Don't you want to know what a different doctrine is versus the true doctrine? Because that's bad theology. What are the major false doctrines that are out there? We'll look at some of those throughout. We can't cover everyone because it seems like they're always cycling back up. But the major ones have been battled in church history. There's been whole books and doctrinal statements written on the different heresies when it comes to the deity of Christ. When it comes to false teaching on the Trinity or denial of the Trinity. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is what we have in the future. We've already seen this in the church. I think it's going to get worse as time goes on. Wanting to have their ears tickled, 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So in it, we live in a day and age where people can just go from church to church every couple months, find a new church, find what they want. I'm going to keep going until I hear exactly what I want. Not what the Bible says. They don't like the sound doctrine. They say they do. They come here and they say, I, I love Reformed theology. Look at all these guys I listen to on the internet. I've been listening to these guys for 10 years on the internet. Still can't find a good church. But after 105 churches, I'm finally here at Grace Bible Church. And this is just the most wonderful church I've ever found. And then two weeks later, they're gone. Why? Probably not because of anything you guys did. Because y'all are very kind and generous. Probably heard something in the service, in the pulpit, that they didn't like. They did not like sound doctrine. Some will tell us that. You know, I just, I just can't agree with that. I mean, one lady told me, she said, this whole idea that you have to hear the gospel, we're coming to that in Romans 10. She said, that's not the way that I've always been taught and believed, that somebody has to tell it to you. You have to read it in the Bible. She said, I just had a dream one time and I woke up and I was saved. And I said, what was the dream about? She said, I don't know. It's just a blue light. This was a mother of one of our members. And I said, ma'am, I just have to go with what the Bible says. I didn't make fun of her or anything. I just said, here's what Romans 10 says. She had a theology on salvation. She had a theology on evangelism. And I was just trying to tell her what the Bible said. And I had said that in the sermon, which is why we had that discussion over in the back corner here after the service. And she hasn't been back since. I don't know if that's the, the idea here or not. But here's what I'm talking about. There's people who don't like sound, biblical, systematic theology. You have to be aware of that so you can help them, so you can tell them the truth. You have to be aware of that because sometimes you'll invite somebody here and you had high hopes and they just didn't like it because of the doctrine. Hopefully it wasn't, you know, anything else that we could help with, but it's our doctrine that offends. Really, the biblical doctrine offends. The doctrine of Scripture offends. It happened with Jesus. They literally, he had all these hundreds of people following him and they walked away one day. And he turned to the disciples, the 12, and he says, are you leaving too? Why'd they leave? Do you think they left because he wasn't a nice enough guy? No, they left because he said things that were too hard for them to hear. It was too hard for them to swallow. They could not endure it. And so there's going to be folks that do not endure sound doctrine. Now, we're not expecting in a church like ours and in like-minded churches that this is just going to be the most outlandish prosperity gospel people coming in. It could be. These will be sometimes more subtle, and you need to know what true doctrine is so you can spot that which is unsound, unbiblical. All right, I'm wanting to preach every one of these verses. We'll be here all day. Second Peter 2, 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers. Where? On TV. That, I don't even turn on those stations. I don't listen to the radio. I don't listen to this. They're among you. They're going to arise among you. Just like there were prophets that arose in Israel, they're going to arise among you. And here's what they do. They teach secretly, introduce destructive heresies. Things that if you believe them, will lead you away from the truth, away from the gospel. They're destructive heresies because they send people to hell. They'll even deny the master that they say bought them. They'll come and say, Christ the Lord bought me, they'll say. And then they'll turn around and say, well, he's not God. How can he have bought you if he's not God? They'll bring swift destruction upon themselves. They'll say things like, well, 
We are the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God. But Christ didn't give us his righteousness. It just says we are. Well, how did we become the righteousness of God all of a sudden? Because we weren't born like that. We didn't start out like that. Well, I don't know. But, you know, he didn't put anything on our account and do all this account stuff. And that's just silly doctrine from the Reformation. You need to know what's in Scripture. You need to not end up like the Galatians, so easily fooled by false teachers. Jude 3, beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. So he just wanted to write a letter about their, their faith, their salvation, the things they believe together. He says, I changed the subject on my letter. I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Not your faith, but the faith, the Christian faith. That which Christ and the apostles taught has now been handed down each generation to the church. And Jude says, you have to contend for it. You can't just say, well, you know, here it is. I'm going to set it over there and go do these fun stuff, fun things. I don't care about doctrine. What's going to happen to the next generation and the next? And by the time your kids and great grandkids are coming here, we didn't care at all about doctrine. We didn't care at all about theology. Where is it gone? It's gone. That's where denominations go. And suddenly one day they're teaching heresy. How does that happen? Because somewhere and a group of people and some leaders back down the line decided it doesn't matter. Doctrine doesn't matter that much. We're just here to help people. Well, that's true. We're here to help people in a lot of ways, mainly to find salvation and get sanctified, sanctification. But we have to care about theology because he says we've got to contend for it. Meaning we, just like with unity in the church in Ephesians 4, we have to work for the unity that the Spirit gave us when we were first believers. We have to contend. That means fight. Not in a physical sense. Not even yelling and arguing with people. But we have to work at it. We have to work at proclaiming the truth, studying the truth, and contending with those who teach falsely. That's an elder's job, by the way. They are, they are supposed to exhort those who contradict sound doctrine. All right, that one was a long one. But that's such a big problem these days. Error. False teaching. Okay, now let's turn it more positive. To grow in godliness. You need to grow in godliness. We're called to grow in godliness. We're called to live holy lives. Be holy like God is holy. We are called to follow Christ. We are called to be like him. What does it mean to pick up your cross and follow him? You deny yourself and your sinful desires and pleasures and you follow him and live like he taught us to live. Grow in godliness. How do you do that if you have some major theological issue that's wrong in your mind? You've grown up believing a certain thing, but you never checked it in the Bible. You may not even realize it, but your, your reluctance or your stumbling back into sin or your hindrances to grow could be because you're off on a doctrinal issue. It could be. That will lead a person to struggle more in certain areas of their life. Here's what Paul says to Timothy, continuing on here. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, we looked at this, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. It's not just doctrine, but doctrine that conforms to godliness. There's a pattern of godliness, and with that has doctrine attached. If somebody says, oh, here's my theology, but they live a completely sinful life, that is not doctrine conforming to godliness. This person's conceited. 
understanding nothing. Tell your friend that when they start teaching you some, some bad practical living. When they start saying, oh yeah, you're not holy completely yet. You're not without sin. The Bible says we can be without sin. Why do you sin all the time, you sinner? You just tell them you're conceited. Or you can throw water in their face like Spurgeon supposedly did. The guys heard that story up in the Bible study on Wednesday. But that's conceited to think that you don't sin. In fact, First John has something to say about that, doesn't he? Right? Those who say they do not sin. The truth is not in them. Mm. Understanding nothing. Yeah, you're my friend. I love you. You're my family member. But I can't hold to that because you don't understand what the Bible says. You're not teaching a doctrine that conforms to godliness. It's not a doctrine that shapes and leads me to love the Lord and follow Him. 2 Timothy 3.10 But you followed my teaching. Didascalia. We talked about these Greek words last week. Didascalia is the a content of the teaching. You followed my teaching, Paul says. The things he said. Then secondly, his conduct. The way he lived, they lived. And he said, my purpose. The reason that he did what he did. His faith. His patience. His love. His perseverance. But notice he mentions teaching. And he does it first. You followed my doctrine because if your doctrine's off, even if you're a true believer, you can have your doctrine off. But if it is off, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle both with grasping what's going on in your life and the world and the church, and you're going to stumble more. That's why you need doctrine conforming to godliness. And you can never sit back and rest and say, well, you know, I've read this. I've read MacArthur and Mayhew. I've read Beakey. I've read Bavink. I've read Burkhoff. I'm all good. You know, I got another 40 years to live. I don't have to study anything else pertaining to scripture and doctrine. No, you've got to keep growing. Did Jesus stop teaching at any point in his earthly ministry? Did he say, disciples, you've lived with me for 24 hours every day for two years. This last year of my ministry here, you guys can take it easy. Just go sit by the, the, the Sea of Galilee, get a suntan. No, he taught them right up to the end. Then he came back and taught them some more, didn't he? And then he showed up to people like Paul and taught even more. All right, so grow in godliness. We've got nine reasons here we're working through. Why should you study theology? Because this is a big question people have, right? You don't need to study theology, they say. That's not needed. People don't need that kind of training. The Bible says otherwise. And here's just nine reasons. You could probably come up with more if you thought about it. To teach others. We're required to teach others. Leaders are required to teach others. You're a parent. You're required to raise up your children in the admonition, discipline of the Lord. What does that mean? Where do you get that information? What the older women are supposed to teach the younger women? What? How to, how to use a broom? How to use a vacuum cleaner? No. I mean, maybe if you need help with that, but that's really not what Titus 2 is about, is it? What is it about? How to live a godly life. How to live a godly life. Where do you find that? In the Bible. So should women study the Bible? I'm getting off topic here, but should women study the Bible? Yeah, there's some churches that don't believe that. That women shouldn't study the Bible. Their husband's got to learn it, then come home and tell them, which is not bad. That pattern is seen in Scripture. The husband learns and he leads his family spiritually. But women should study the Bible too. And Titus 2 is older women training and teaching the younger women. Not just on practical home stuff, but actually where it's found in Scripture. 
Yeah, and the husband can be wrong sometimes. She's, she's got to learn as well. It's one of the reasons we do women's Bible studies and some women's conferences here. James 3.1. Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. So if you are going to be a teacher, you need to realize there's a stricter judgment. Because now it's not just your, your sanctification and maybe salvation that you're teaching about and dealing with and maybe affecting with your bad teaching but it's other people's. And God is going to hold people accountable for what they teach. All these false teachers that drive us crazy out there, they're going to be held accountable. And so James is saying in this section here where he's talking about the tongue, you better be careful how we use your tongue, especially if you're a teacher, because you can say the wrong thing and affect people. You know, I can always tell a guy who really wants to consider going into ministry. There are lots of people who want to go into ministry that I meet and the men who come here sometimes, and the ones who say, my biggest concern is telling someone else something wrong about salvation, about Scripture. That's going to happen. We're going to bumble and stumble sometimes, but no man wants to get up in the pulpit and preach on his first sermon and say something heretical. That would just be horrible. Now, occasionally mistakes can be made. You don't realize it. But again, James says, be careful. Be careful. It's, it's humility to say, I'm going to wait till I get a basic concept of these things in the Bible before teaching others. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Why would someone be ashamed? Because they taught wrongly. A good workman who does a good job and he, he's careful with his tools and he does the thing that he's supposed to do. That's a good workman. But someone who bumbles it, someone who doesn't care, someone who gets it wrong, that's a bad workman. And we are called, if you, especially as a teacher or a preacher, you're called to handle the word accurately. This is God's precious word. And if you're going to teach others, I'm not talking about evangelism here or even apologetics, although that gets closer. That's coming up, evangelism and apologetics. But this is teaching. This is sitting down with somebody, teaching them what the scriptures mean or your family, or a group, or preaching a sermon. This is accurately handling the word of truth. That's important. It's required for elders. So if you're going to teach, it's required you know theology. In fact, in seminary, they told us, they said, look, we teach theology here, not because you're going to be some awesome, great theologian, although some go on to do that, but because you need to know the guardrails. So when you stand up to preach the word, you don't accidentally go off the guardrails. These are the guardrails. The Bible says this is our theological system as Christians. And so when I'm preaching, I must be within those guardrails. As elders, an elder is required to know sound doctrine. This is not an option. The Bible does not say, well, some elders have to know it, but others don't, right? If the guy makes a lot of money in business, he doesn't have to know sound doctrine. But the guy who went to seminary has to know sound doctrine. Well, they're both elders, the Bible says, and they have to know. Sound doctrine. First Timothy 3.2, an overseer, that's an elder, must be above reproach, that's his life. Husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He's got to have the ability to teach. And that comes with the idea that he knows right doctrine from wrong doctrine. A man is not a biblically qualified elder if he can't do this. That doesn't mean they all have to be Charles Spurgeon's. Right? There was only one Charles Spurgeon. There's only one John MacArthur, but there's 38 elders there. 
They don't all have to be eloquent preachers, but teaching, opening the Bible, teaching what it means and how it applies to life. The elder has to have sound doctrine. That's really clear in Titus 1.9. They have to hold fast, again, elders. They have to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, didache. It's in accordance with what the apostles taught. You're not going off into some heresy. So that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine. So that is and encourage the believers to believe the truth, didascalia, and to reprove, to correct those who contradict. Have you ever been in a church where there was some false teaching? And it was really frustrating to you because nobody was doing anything about it? Uh, maybe, maybe a leader even said, well, you know, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, they are good people. Well, I don't want to tell them they're saying anything wrong. They've been here for 20 years. They're big givers. What is an elder called to do? Reprove those who contradict. They have to reprove sometimes strongly if the person doesn't stop. An elder has to know sound doctrine so they can teach sound doctrine and correct those who don't teach sound doctrine. And we're not talking about small little things, right? We're talking about the 10 major categories there. And the things that pertain to the essentials and sometimes even secondary matters in a church, depending on how much trouble it's causing. Any questions so far? I know I'm preaching a a mini sermon on most of these, but I'm pretty passionate about learning good theology. I was in a seeker friendly church for years. None of this stuff was ever taught. I couldn't tell you anything about church history, I couldn't tell you anything about theology, what it was, that there was heresies. I just knew it was fun to go and listen to the music. And it wasn't like the preaching was completely heretical, but it, it was nothing to it. It was nothing to it. It was like drinking water every day for every meal. You're not going to live very long like that. And so one day I showed up in a church and they're talking about justification. That scared me away. I didn't even go back for six months. Then they said sanctification and I've never heard that word. I'm not kidding. I've been a Christian seven years at that point. Never even heard of justification and sanctification. It's very true out there. There's just not any teaching on doctrine. And those are biblical words. All right, where are we? Required for preachers. So now we're going, okay, elders have to teach, but preaching is different. Preaching is is both a teaching aspect and and a proclamation and an exhortation, all combined together usually to larger groups. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. So preaching has this idea of not just explaining a Bible passage, that's more just Bible teaching, but applying it, exhorting people to believe it, exhorting people to change their lives, proclaiming the gospel, correcting bad theology in the sermon. All this is going on in the sermon. And the teaching, the didache, has to be part of that. Sound theology has to be part of that. There are good pastors out there and, and good men who, who believe sometimes that I just need to stick to the text and not interact with anything that's else in the Bible or that's going on in the world. So it becomes kind of a glorified Bible study. Well, here's what this word means, and here's the 47 Greek words for this, and uh, here's what I'm in Nehemiah. So here's what fat means. Here's what sweet means. Here's what sin portions means. Here's what the joy of Yahweh means. Here's what a Levite is. All right, all done. Praise the Lord. Let's go home. What just happened there? I told you what the words meant, maybe even some of the grammar. But I didn't connect it with anything. 
especially since we were in the Old Testament. I need to connect it to the New Testament Christian. And it would be nice if I interacted with different thoughts that are going on with my listeners in their heads, right? Because people come in with some bad theology. Well, I always heard that the fat portions were the magical portions. That's why they ate them. Or just crazy theology that's out there. So if I know that's kind of prevailing in this area, I might say something about it. Interact with that. I might go to the New Testament and say, look, all things are clean now. We don't have to do these sacrifices. The new covenant, that's doing theology. It's good to be in the text. But as a preacher, you need to interact with not just what's in that one passage, but how does it interact and where's the context of the book, the Old Testament versus New, the whole Bible, and application and so on. Look at what Paul did, Acts 19. But when some were becoming hardened, were not believing, speaking evil of the way, they were speaking evil of the way before the multitude, Paul left them and he took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What's going on here? First seminary, right here. Oh, technically Jesus' three years was like real life seminary. But this is the first seminary after Christ has ascended. There, there's preaching on street corners. Come to Christ. And there's hecklers and there's Jews wanting to beat up the Christians and so on. And people are speaking evil. So Paul doesn't stop preaching to them. But he takes the believers and he takes them aside in a big place, right? I mean, this is a big one. It's a school of Tyrannus. That's not one little classroom. This is a big room and maybe even a stadium. And he gets all these men, maybe women too. It depends on if it's more of a training seminary for, for men to go out and take the gospel or just for Christians in general. Seminary just means seed bed, by the way. That means plant a seed. And then you continue to water it and it grows up. So the seminaries, to plant seeds today, the seminaries to plant a seed and a man and his mind and his heart. And he goes out in ministry and he waters that seed and it grows up into a fruitful ministry. So for two years, he taught them. Two years. Every day. He's going in there. He's reasoning daily. Reasoning, mean, making an argument. Here's what the Bible means. Here's what the world says out there, but here's what the Bible means. And they still went out and preached the gospel to the lost. But for believers, he's training them. This is a seminary. People say, you know, seminaries, they're not needed. They're not biblical. This is a seminary. You can take the name off. It's still what's happening here. There's training by the apostle for these new believers to learn theology, to learn the scriptures, to learn how to live it out. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said to preachers. Be well instructed in theology and do not regard the sneers of those who rail at it because they are ignorant of it. Many preachers are not theologians and hence the mistakes which they make. It cannot do any hurt to the most lively evangelist to be also a sound theologian. And it may often be the means of saving him from gross blunders. Nowadays we hear men tear a single sentence from scripture from its connection. And they cry, Eureka, Eureka, as if they found a new truth. And yet they have not discovered a diamond, but a piece of broken glass. So he's saying all these preachers, and this is even worse today, they take one passage and they pull it out of its context and they say, look at this new thing I discovered. And then they start proclaiming that like it's the truth. And he says, they just got a piece of broken glass. You know, the diamonds right there in the scriptures. And if we exegete it properly and put it together with the, the scriptures, we can proclaim it rightly. But this guy back then and today, they're just pulling things out of context and doing what they want with it. No theology, he says. And him and his wife, they believe this so much. 
that they got money together because all these poor pastors in England did not have many books. And Spurgeon had like 30,000 books in his library. And he, so he, you know, he was pastor of a big church. He had some money. His sermons were selling for a penny each. And that actually made him a lot of money. And so his wife got together the pastor's book, book service, book depository, something like that. And what she would do is a pastor would write in, say, I don't have any books. And she would get some books together and send them. She'd buy them and then send them to these pastors in the middle of nowhere who had nothing but their Bibles. Because they were off, they were teaching wrong things, they didn't know where to go with things. And so she would get Puritan works, she would get various commentaries and send to the pastors. That's how much they believed us. Here's Cornelius Van Til. He was a professor at Westminster back in its heyday when it was first started. And very famous for his books that he wrote on presuppositional apologetics. He says in his book, Introduction to Systematic Theology, which a lot of the books I'm showing you today we have in the bookstore, it is sometimes contended that ministers need not be trained in systematic theology if only they knew their Bibles. It sounds good, right? All they need to know is their Bibles. But Bible trained, he said, instead of systematically trained preachers, frequently preach error. Now, Bible trained is in quotes because they're not really Bible trained, right? If you don't interact with theology from history and interact with theological concepts that are there in the world, then you're just head down like this. Sometimes, he says, you're going to come up with strange things. That's what Spurgeon said. But Bible trained, instead of systematically trained preachers, frequently preach error. There are many orthodox preachers today whose study of Scripture has been so limited to what it says about soteriology that they could not protect the fold of God against heresies on the person of Christ. So here's what that looks like. I and mean, you probably know some churches, maybe been in some. I don't know about that. I, I can't I can't really answer your question on that doctrinal issue. Because all I know is we're here to save sinners. Well, that's true. Every believer knows that, hopefully right away. This is a pastor shepherding the flock. So teology is a study of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, which we'll come to. It's one of the ten topics of systematic theology. Soteriology, soter from the Greek soter, salvation, savior. And he's saying that they've done okay learning sort of the gospel and how to proclaim that, but they don't know about Christology or today theology proper because the Trinity is under attack. So they can preach the gospel, but when it comes to the Mormons, they don't even know how to interact with their bad theology on the Trinity. So we have to be careful here. Obviously, you want to get the gospel right. And obviously the gospel ties into all these other things, right? Because if you say, all I want to do is preach the gospel. Okay, who's Jesus Christ? I don't know, but I'm going to preach that people should come to him. Why? See, I'm asking theological questions. Who is he? Why should they come to him? I don't know. They just need to come to him. I'm talking about a pastor here, not the new believer right on day one. This is the guy who's leading the flock. That's like you, you're, you're a sheep in the field and you come up to the shepherd and say, where do we go? And he says, I don't know. I'm just here to make sure you don't die today. That's great. But how about growing a little bit, growing some wool out of this sheep, you know? There are many pastors who, they kind of know the basics of the faith. But even if you read the book of Hebrews, he says, look, this is, this is like baby food now. Not that the gospel is not important, but he's saying these basics of the faith, repentance, faith, you can grow in your knowledge of them, but we got to move on to connect it with other things in Scripture. What is faith? Who is your faith in? Is it just faith in faith? 
Is it faith in Christ? Who is Christ? What did he do? Is he God? Is he not God? What does it mean that he took on flesh? Those are theological questions and statements. So Ventil is just getting at pastors need to know, shepherds need to know some things about this. And not just one category, but all the whole counsel of God. Continuing on, he says, if we carry this idea one step further, we note that a study of systematic theology will help men to preach theologically. It will help to make men proclaim the whole counsel of God. Many ministers never touch the greater part of the wealth of the revelation of God to man contained in Scripture. But systematics helps ministers to preach the whole counsel of God and thus to make God central in their work. The whole counsel of God. Why is it that if you could choose a text, sometimes in some churches they kind of preach the same theme all the time? Well, it could be that's the pastor's pet theme, but it also could be that he doesn't know a lot of these other categories of doctrine. He wants to be careful to stay away from them. So we preach the word, but the word has doctrine that it teaches, right? And there's many doctrines in the Bible. They all connect to one another. They all connect to one another. So a shepherd needs to know these things. A preacher needs to know these things. Okay, last one. Sound theology is rare. Why study theology? Well, because it's so rare. And if you're going to stand out and be the light on a hill in a dark world, if you're going to be the person that people can come to and ask questions of, you need to know something about it. It's so rare in our world. We have a plethora, plethora of books. We have software. I mean, I bought this Bible software years ago, and I use it every, every week. But it has like 4,000 resources, right? A thousand of the things are probably all junk. Another thousand I'll never read. The other thousand I use, right? Logos Bible software. You buy a package and you get all these things. There's so much out there. Bible software, websites, translations, books. And people know less theology today in Christianity than at any time, I think, in church history. I really think it's just so bad out there. So don't take my word for it. Ligonier does a survey every couple of years. And they survey all Americans. I don't know if they do it by phone. I think it was by mail recently, maybe on the internet now. They divide all Americans, and then they take the ones who say they're evangelicals. I don't think evangelical political category. They actually don't ask the person. They see what they check on these four things in the survey. And if they do, they call them an evangelical. And then they separate those out. So this is important. What is an evangelical according to them? Well, it has to be somebody who on the survey agreed with the following. The Bible's the highest authority for what I believe. It's very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So number one rules out liberal Christians. Number two rules out Catholics and a lot of other cults. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So this is our camp, right? This is our circle. These are the people that you know, that you, you, you feel very strongly that they're a Christian. They seem to be solid when it comes to the gospel. So there's going to be two groups of people that I show you. All Americans, what percentage believe certain thing. And then these evangelicals, who are the Bible-believing Christians in America. Okay, you're supposed to say if you agree or disagree, or you slightly, I think, disagree or, or slightly agree. The statement number three, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. What do y'all think? Anybody want to say agree? Let's take the quiz. We're going to what? Strongly disagree. Evangelicals, 56% agreed with this. This was 2022. 2022. 
I think they did understand it because of the other answers coming up. There's a lot of cultural stuff bleeding into evangelical Christianity. The evangelicals of 20 years ago are not the same as today. Number four, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. What do you all think? Agree? Strongly disagree. Americans, 51% in general. So we don't, we kind of expect that from general average American, right? Really, this is the resistance against God's sovereignty, right? And he has to change according to what we want. 48% of evangelicals surveyed agreed that God is changing, God is learning, God is adapting. This is why you need to know theology. These people are going to be your family members, your friends. This was some of you, right? This is some of us. Such were some of you, Paul said. This was us at one point, before we were saved especially. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agreed. This is taking, I think, strongly agreed and slightly agreed and combining them together. But it doesn't matter. If you agree 1% on this statement then about Jesus not being God, that's heretical. They don't know it. Why? They haven't been taught. They haven't brought themselves to the, to the point of studying theology, and they haven't been in churches maybe where they've had theology taught. All right, everyone's born innocent in the eyes of God. You know what the average American's going to say on this, right? Now, this is only modern. Before modern times, no one thought this. No one thought this. Maybe a few philosophical groups out there somewhere. This is a very modern concept. 65% of evangelicals agreed. Number 16, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. So this is interesting. So what do you think America is going to do with this? 53% agreed. So evangelicals, they, w- they wouldn't agree with this because one of the, the ways you are classified as an evangelical is because you have agreed that the Bible is always true. Gender identity is a matter of choice. Over one-third of evangelicals agreed. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. A little over a fourth of evangelicals agreed with that. Doesn't apply today. All right, we'll pick up here next week and then get into the doctrine of Scripture. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know better theology so we could show others the truth, so we could grow, so we could live godly lives. We pray for our fellow Americans. We pray for our fellow Texans. We pray for those in this area who do not know what the Bible teaches. Many times it is their own fault, but sometimes they have been misled. And we pray for them to find biblical churches, to confront their leaders who are teaching heretical teaching. And we pray, Lord, that you would plant more biblical churches, not just more churches, Lord, but more faithful biblical churches to raise up sound Christians, those who are solid, those who love your word and want to learn and grow and teach it to others. We pray this in the name of our Holy Savior. Amen.